the Romans ever done for us. Hi, my name's Neil, and you're listening to the Ancient History Hound podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at AncientBlogger. Links and other ancient history content are on my website, ancientblogger.com. Around this time of the year, I've previously released the hashtag Night of the Livy Dead podcast, where I talk about all things spooky in ancient Greece and Rome from the stories and accounts we have. If you get the chance, have a listen, though obviously after you've listened to this one. Now, there's a finite amount of material... So this year I decided to go full-on sinister and research what has become a two-parter on human sacrifice in antiquity. This episode focuses on the Near East, that is to say Mesopotamia, and I've also included Carthage. As you'll hear, there's a bit of an association going on there. The second part, which I'll release in due course, has Roman Greece firmly in its sights. For obvious reasons, the content is strong in as much as it deals with quite a lot of specific death. Child sacrifice is also featured, and I thought I'd mention this just in case it might be a bit too much. I have to be honest and say this was a tough one to research and, as ever, tough to record. I'll start in the upper reaches of Mesopotamia and what is now southern Turkey. Along the banks of the upper Tigris, a mound was discovered, and this was excavated, and it's called Besa Hoyuk. It contained a number of tombs, and these date to around the beginning of the 3rd millennium BCE. One tomb within the mound caused quite a bit of interest. It consisted of an inner chamber with a stone coffin and a small area outside of it, a sort of, I suppose, porch or lobby. The inner chamber contained what seemed like three individuals. Now, as you can imagine, it's always difficult to be sure when dealing with very old remains, which can literally just be fragments. But there was certainly one adult, and probably the remains of two 12-year-olds. The porch or lobby, and apologies to any archaeologists who are seething at me using these terms, contained around eight individuals, all between 10 and 20 years at the point of burial, and what was crucial here was the context in all of this. This wasn't a mass burial where people had rolled in some extra bodies which were hanging around somewhere, probably following some horrible battle. These were deliberately placed, and also well adorned. These were important to the main burial, and the argument is that they were killed for it. Exactly how they were killed is difficult to diagnose. One of the teenage male skeletons had a puncture wound to the head, which is the likely cause. But people were often killed through stabbings and cut throats. This is damage to soft tissue and doesn't always leave a mark past the body decomposing. This brings us to the first type of sacrifice we can comment on. It's sometimes termed attendant sacrifice. The thinking is that people were killed in order to serve a person of high status in the afterlife. In these instances, context is incredibly important. Mass burials were a thing in this period, as they sadly are in modern times, but experts can use the context of a burial to help differentiate a mass killing from something far more specialised. Now, I appreciate you might be juggling with this in the context of being sacrificed. After all, sacrifice is often understood within the parameters of a relationship with a deity. What I mean by this is that a person sacrificed to a deity either on their own behalf or for their respective community. And the idea is the deity in question is now either placated or driven to assist them. But that wasn't always the case. And there are examples of sacrifice, some quite famous, which I'll be talking about in this podcast and part two. The next example of attendant sacrifice is located in modern day Turkey and to a similar time. 
At Arslan Tape, the remains of two pairs of skeletons were found, again placed very specifically in a tomb. Each pair contained an individual between 12 and 15 years of age, and the other 16 to 18 years of age. These pairs were found surrounding the remains of a male, 35 to 45 years of age, who must have been dressed very well given the large number of silver pins found on and around him. This feature of a main burial and very carefully placed individuals might be considered a one-off or perhaps a, suppose a freakish undertaken limited to a particular type of social ritual at a specific point in time. But this doesn't seem to have been the case, and a site excavated further to the south, in fact much further to the south, took the grandiose and the macabre element of all of this to a whole new level. The location was the ancient city of Ur, that is to say U-R, which is in southern Iraq. Ur was founded around 3800 BCE and became a major city for the Sumerians. In the 1920s and 30s, the royal cemetery there was excavated by a team led by Sir Charles Leonard Woolley, which revealed a whole range of findings, including 16 royal tombs. These tombs were dated to 2600 BCE, so they date four to 500 years after the previous burials I've been talking about. The main chamber housed the remains of the royals and some spectacular finds. If you get the chance, it's worth searching for Royal Cemetery Ur grave goods, my favourite being the Sumerian headgear, which was found in the tomb of Poabi. I'll try and describe it here, but now yeah, let's just call it a real statement piece. Outside of the main chamber was the lower area, which contained a large number of attendants. In the case of a tomb belonging to Queen Poabi, I've just mentioned, this numbered 63 attendants, 6 soldiers and 2 ox-drawn carts, yes, with oxen there as well as their drivers. The largest had 74 attendants and this included soldiers and even a group of musicians who were identified by the instruments next to them. The attendants were arranged in rows and well-dressed, which may not, I suppose, be much of a surprise by this point. Sir Charles referred to them as the Death Pits of Ur, and as such, he had not only made a major discovery, but also invented possibly the greatest name for a heavy metal band or album. But this discovery invited a number of questions. The main one, how did they die? For Sir Charles, the answer was in the cups found next to many of the attendants, or rather, what was in them. The attendants had lined up in order and just drank poison. And this is quite a plausible suggestion, and if you've ever read or heard about the Jonestown Massacre in 1978, this might ring a few bells. But more recent forensic analysis has argued against this, and if possible, made the whole affair even creepier. Having been buried for around 4,500 years, it's little surprise that the remains weren't in great shape. The best surviving pieces were some skulls, but modern forensics never fails to impress. The teeth in the skull of one soldier suggested he was in his mid-twenties when killed. Using similar methodology, one of the female attendants was given as being in her late teens. The skulls of these two and one other attendant also revealed a circular hole around 30 millimeters in diameter. Whatever made this hole would have killed the person. And now I turn to the dinner table chat of striking weapons. You see, Different weapons leave different types of damage when they hit. A club or a mace doesn't tend to penetrate bone in this manner. It rather, it will fracture and leave cracks on the bone. What we are left with is something with a pointy end. But a sword wouldn't necessarily have the piercing force to make the hole through the skull. The contender would have to combine 
brute force with a small area of impact. In a paper titled Human Sacrifice and Intentional Corpse Preservation in the Royal Cemetery at Ur, the smoking gun is in fact a type of battle axe which had a long point on one end. These were used at the time, so would have been both available and familiar to the personal persons charged with using them for this purpose. Sir Charles' idea of mass poisoning was at best circumstantial, but the forensics revealed even more. Sir Charles hadn't anything close to CT analysis or the suite of scientific tools with which to throw a sharper eye over the remains, but he had noted that some of the bones seemed charred. Given that he, all the other things he was finding, he, I suppose you could forgive him for not pursuing this further, but the CT scans also revealed what seemed to be damaged caused by heating, thus confirming this. Sadly, the argument on this wasn't fully conclusive from the results, but a known practice of later periods was preservation by heating. In fact, the paper gave an example of a Nero-Assyrian queen dating to the 8th century BCE whose corpse was heated for several hours at a temperature of between 150 and 250 degrees to keep it, well, I suppose, tomb fresh. Furthermore, what the CT scan of the female skull picked up were particles of mercury sulphide. It's known as cinnabar, which is a preservative, and therefore perhaps not that surprising. Further tests did reveal the presence of mercury vapour, though, and the picture which the authors of the paper paint is, well, I suppose you can decide, at the death of a royal figure, there were several days of mourning and rites. During this, the attendants were killed by a blow to the head, most likely from the spike on the battle axe. In order to keep the bodies as fresh as possible, they were then exposed to mercury vapour and heated. Presumably, they were then dressed and placed where they lay until their discovery. The fact that Ur was such a distance in terms of time and physical location from the other burials I've mentioned, suggests that attendant sacrifice was a known ritual, which was engaged on, albeit in varying degrees. But at the same time, it's very specific, and this wasn't the right of your average individual, and instead belonged to the elite. It was not only theirs to practice, but it was done to support them. The kings, queens and chiefs were the focus of it. Next up, I want to talk about an entirely different type of sacrifice. One where you could play king for a few days, but at a price which, well, I imagine you've already guessed. It's known as the Substitute King Ritual. Exactly when this started is unclear, but fortunately we have examples of it in the reign of King Esarhaddon, who was ruler of the Neo-Assyrian Empire between 681 and 669 BCE. The Neo-Assyrian Empire covered much of what we term the Middle East and certainly Mesopotamia by the time Esarhaddon had come to rule. It also embraced and continued to develop the discipline of astronomy. The Venus Tablet of Amisaduqa recorded the rising times of Venus, and though the copy of the tablet we have dates to the 7th century BCE, it had been practiced since around 1700 BCE. To help them note the positions of the known planets of the time, the earliest Sumerians who had occupied southern Mesopotamia used a sexagesimal counting system. That's basis of 60 to you and me. So if you wonder why we have 60 minutes an hour and 360 degrees in a circle, yep, it started here. And the reason I've gone on this somewhat informative tangent is that nothing horrified a king at this time more than an eclipse. And by this point, eclipses had been recorded and accurately predicted for several centuries. Eclipses were bad news. For a king at the time, it could sit alongside a number of other ill portents. Any instances of famine or plague would be knitted into this and form a kind of kingly stain about his person. The question was what could you do about it? How could a king avoid being attached and associated to all of this bad, bad stuff? 
The answer was simple. Just not be a king for a short while. Have someone else sit on the throne and pretend to be the king. When the eclipse happened, the kingship affected would be associated with them and you could just have them killed shortly after. This is a brief summary of the substitute king ritual. Accounts of it are sparse but do exist. In one instance, we even have a letter about the ritual which was triggered by an eclipse on the 27th of December 671 BCE during Esarhaddon's time on the throne. From what we can understand, the ritual went something like this. In the first instance, the substitute king is nominated. The letter from the 671 BCE ritual mentioned a person called Damqui. The substitute king takes the throne and the official items of state, which are the table, the throne and the mace. At this point, the real king has or is undertaking a series of rituals separating him from the kingship. These were both physical and spiritual. He was removed from the palace and lived in what must have been a temporary secluded area, where he had no involvement in the matters of state. He was guarded though, which must have been required, because otherwise, let's face it, what was stopping the substitute king from just usurping the throne? The substitute's job was to absorb all of the evil portents, the bad omens and the like, into his kingship. The premise here was that the kingship had been passed on to this new person, and his job was to get it as mucky as possible. And this was done in a number of ways. Well, obviously there's the eclipse, assuming he was in place when it happened, and this obviously left a mark on him. But not only this, he was chanted out, with the chants being formed of the various bad omens and things which had occurred during his rule. Just to cap it all off, some of these were written into clay tablets and attached to his clothes. The substitute king and queen, because there could be a substitute queen as well, were treated exactly as real royals would have been, apart from the insults that had been thrown at them, and dined in spectacular fashion. However, if ever a Neo-Assyrian ritual screamed that there was no such thing as a free lunch, it was this. At some point shortly after the eclipse, the substitute king and queen were both killed. In line with their temporary royal status, the substitute royal or royals were buried with full regal splendour, and I suppose I found this a bit curious. If you'd asked me what had happened to them both, I would have thought they'd be simply disposed of as they'd fulfilled their purpose. But the royal table, the royal throne and the royal mace were all burned and buried with them. Perhaps the idea was that if they were buried as regular commoners, the stained and tainted kingship they had would have reverted back to its former owner. Now the real king was able to take the throne once more. His kingship was renewed and free of anything nasty. That was until next time. And scholars have wondered to what extent this ritual could have been used to control kings. Was it some form of a political tool or a political check against them? In any case, human sacrifice in Mesopotamia is difficult to comment on past the instances I've mentioned. There isn't the data set whereby grand conclusions can be drawn, with people being sacrificed to chiefs and kings, and even a ritual whereby someone is sacrificed in place of the king. What this does offer, though, is a very basic comment that human sacrifice was something utilised in a formal context, and not something inherently evil or taboo. As we'll see, it wasn't something others did and thus marked them out as being wrong or heinous. It also belonged firmly to the realm, ironically, of the living, Attendants were sacrificed to serve those who had existed. Likewise, the substitute king ritual was centred on a real and living person. However, human sacrifice was practised to serve a deity, and evidence of this forms a wider and highly contentious debate. Question. How do you make human sacrifice more controversial? Answer. Throw in religion, because, well, I need to talk about the Old Testament. 
Engaging with the books of the Old Testament brings with it a responsibility to respect those who hold them as a foundation for their faith. I started my podcast because I wanted to share a love of the ancient world, so I'm not here to cause any kind of division. But at some point I was always going to have to discuss and sieve the accounts found in the Old Testament, as I would do with any historical source. As such, I'm going to look at some existing arguments surrounding sacrifice and possible instances, because this is referenced a fair number of times in the Old Testament books. I should also acknowledge that many of these books were written sometime after the events they describe, and as such, they may place the instances of sacrifice I mention in the past. For example, the Book of Kings, which covers events as far back as the 10th century BCE, may have been finally committed to text in the 7th century BCE. This is uncommon by any standard, I just wanted to note it here. And with that in mind, I'll start with a story which I think helps understand human sacrifice in the Old Testament. Ironically, it's technically a non-event, as no one has sacrificed. It's a famous non-sacrifice. In the book of Genesis, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his only son to the Israelite God. Abraham duly agrees and takes his son Isaac up a mountain. He builds an altar and binds him. He's just about to bring the knife down upon him when an angel appears and informs him that he doesn't need to do this. What does end up being sacrificed is a ram, which is caught in a nearby thicket. What's announced by the angelic intervention is that the Israelite God doesn't require you to sacrifice your child. Why the need to clarify this exactly? To help answer this and raise the mood a tad, imagine joining a gym, and as you sign up, you're proudly told that this gym does not require you to run naked through the local park on a Tuesday. This sort of unique selling point could only exist in a universe where all your local gyms had this requirement. Child sacrifice needed to be defined as not required because it was a requirement elsewhere. If so, then we can follow that child sacrifice was recognised. It wasn't something out of the blue, and three deities in the Old Testament are tied to its practice. The first is Chemosh, who is described as the vile god of Moab, a kingdom located in modern-day Jordan. Their king Mesha was under siege from an Israelite force, and according to Book 2 of Kings, sacrificed his son on the city wall. The Israelite force then fell back, though the link between this and the sacrifice isn't explained. King Mesha is mentioned on a stele, known as the Mesha stele, or the Moabite stone, which dates to the mid-9th century BCE. As you might expect, the stele extols Mesha as a great ruler, builder, and notes his military successes. This is all accomplished through his partnership with Chemosh, and whilst it doesn't refer to him sacrificing his son, hardly surprising really, it does mention him killing the population of Ataroth as a sacrifice to Chemosh. Our second deity is one I suspect you might have heard of. The name Baal is commonplace within the Old Testament and beyond it. It refers to gods, men and places, because it doesn't seem to have been a specific name. Rather, it translates as something like Lord. This can make it difficult to understand who or which deity it refers to when used. For example, there's the Baal of Peor, who is presumably the chief deity of that tribe. Then there's the Baal of the city of Ekron, who was called Zebub. Put the two together and you get Baal Zebub, or as the modern version goes, Beelzebub. Baal is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, where the high places, a term we'll come to later, was used as a place where worship involved the sacrifice of children in a fire. It's difficult to know exactly which deity this Baal represented, but for the sake of clarity and my sanity, I'm going to commit the crime of bunching the Baals as a unified bunch. Meet the Baals. I might have to note that one down and send to Hollywood. 
The third deity, Molech, is definitively linked to child sacrifice. He is the detestable god of the people of Ammon. It was his sanctuaries where sons and daughters were sacrificed as burnt offerings, and which Josiah was all too happy to lay waste to when purging its worship from Jerusalem. Molech presents a slightly different problem to Baal, because Baal just needed a qualifier to help identify him. Molech is argued as fictional. The root of Molech originally meant sacrifice, or an offering, and this probably involved a child. The line of argument follows that Molech became a catch-all term for this type of human sacrifice. Molech, then, was an invented personification of a practice which the Israelite religion felt was abhorrent. All three are set within the context of child sacrifice, and it won't have escaped your attention that this is what Abraham was also asked to do. He wasn't asked to sacrifice an attendant, but his child. We could step back and observe the religious landscape for what it was at this time. Not a vacuum, but one in which religions competed. The first commandment famously goes along the lines of, Thou shalt not have any god before me. And this has been interpreted as the Israelite god demanding exclusivity, which may have been unusual at this time. Henotheism, apart from being a great word, is the worship of a deity whilst accepting other gods, and it could have been that people worshipped across several religions at this point. It would explain why later kings often swayed from the proverbial path and incorporated worship of the deities I've mentioned during their reigns. The famous King Solomon was criticised for raising a high place for Chemosh and Molech. Fellow kings Ahab, Ahaz and Manasseh all diverted from the Israelite faith and engaged with Baal and company. This wasn't without pushback. Jehu, who reigned from the mid-late 9th century BCE, set up a large and elaborate ambush by pretending to worship Baal and having all his followers meet for a huge sacrifice. The word was given and the followers slaughtered by his soldiers who waited outside. Josiah in the 7th century BC continued this purge, even going so far as to kill the heretical priests on their altars. The Abraham and Isaac story can be held up as a statement of how the religion of the Israelites viewed infant sacrifice. It wasn't needed and distinguishes it from the other religions which shared this ritual. Abraham's passive nature to the request supports the argument that infant sacrifice was practiced elsewhere, but his lack of alarm due to the nature of the demand, has lent weight to the idea that infant sacrifice was part of the early Israelite religion. The introduction of a substitute for a child, in this case a ram, adds some weight to this. The sacrifice isn't cancelled, it's still required, but Isaac can be replaced by an animal. Can this story act as a retrospective correction to a practice which once occurred, but was now altered? In short, we used to have infant sacrifice because it was simply a practice shared by other religions of the lands, but now we don't do it like this anymore. To fully support this, I'd need a definitive statement of this being required. The closest we have is in Exodus, where the firstborn is to be dedicated to the Lord. Yeah, this could mean a number of things, but one instruction mentions this couched within the topic of sacrifice. The book of Micah contains a section where the prophet Micah wonders what could appease his God. Amongst the many potential offerings is his firstborn son. This could be sarcasm, but then there's a the story of Jephthah, who leads an Israelite army against the forces of Ammon. As he leaves a battle, he vows to sacrifice to the Lord the first thing which comes out of his house and greets him on his return, that is, if he's successful. No prizes for guessing where this goes, it's his daughter. Sadly, this time there's no saving angel. The daughter accepts her fate and even goes into the hills for two months to mourn. 
The story has been used in an etiological sense, and by that I mean it's used to explain the history and reason behind something. In this instance, it's used to give a foundation myth, as it were, for a ritual whereby young women of Israel are said to have taken where they spent time in the hills. My view, for what it's worth, is that it might be a revised account of some pre-battle sacrifice, which was changed from sacrificing human to a more tragic version where it's easier to write it off as just a very, very stupid, ill-thought-out vow. The books of the Old Testament were written at different points in time and by different people, and it's partially because of this that we have child sacrifice being universally condemned, whilst also containing shadows of it. The more I read the story of Abraham and Isaac, the more I see and saw it as an instruction to amend the old ways and perhaps a narrative retrospectively added to ensure anyone looking back had a neat example of this attitude underlined. I suppose it's a sort of disclaimer added in at a later date. Information about how the sacrifices functioned and their exact location isn't in abundance. Often the high places are mentioned in Book 2 of Kings, a site called the Valley of Ben-Himon, just outside Jerusalem, is given as where Josiah tore down the altars. And it's here that we find the word Tophet also mentioned. This word is commonly associated with our final destination, Carthage. There's plenty which binds the city of Hannibal and Dido to the lands of the Old Testament, the most obvious being that it was a colony of Tyre, which featured in the Old Testament and worships the sorts of deities I've just been speaking about. Child sacrifice at Carthage is an association which even those who are not all that familiar with antiquity may well have heard of. With Carthage you've got Hannibal, elephants, possibly Dido, and child sacrifice. And I approach Carthage expecting to find far more mention from the usual sources in respect of this. And I was surprised. The likes of Livy, Polybius and Herodotus don't reference child sacrifice at all. Herodotus was a real surprise, particularly as child sacrifice is exactly the sort of thing he did certainly include, and in part two I'll be featuring his scribblings on human sacrifice, which he does mention. The source evidence pivots on the accounts of three historians and a poem. I'll start with the poem first. It was written in the first century CE by a Roman called Silius Italicus. It's difficult to take an account written by someone called Silius that seriously. Silius Italicus feels like a missed opportunity for a character in the life of Brian but the poem is called Punica, and its subject was Hannibal's invasion of Italy. In book four of this, Hannibal is approached by an embassy from Carthage, and they tell him that his son has been selected as a victim for a sacrifice back at Carthage. The great general refuses, and instead promises to deliver Romans as the sacrifice needed for the gods. Of the historians, the oldest is Clitarchos, a Greek who wrote in the 3rd century BCE. His description is probably just worth reading out. Out of reverence for Kronos, the Phoenicians and especially the Carthaginians, whenever they seek to obtain some great favour, vow one of their children, burning it as a sacrifice to the deity if they are especially eager to gain success. There stands in their midst a bronze statue of Kronos, its hands extended over a bronze brazier, the flames of which engulf the child. The association with Balhamon and Kronos isn't uncommon, in a world of polytheism, cultures often reference to God, but with different names. All you needed to do was have one which sort of overlapped with what they were relating to. You call your sea god Alan, we call him Clive, that sort of thing. Baal is often picked as Kronos by the Greeks, and later Saturn by the Romans. It's not a perfect match, but religion in antiquity wasn't furnished with a sharp set of definitions. 
The most disturbing and prominent aspect is the deity as a physical structure, which facilitates the infant being passed into the flames. This formed the backbone of Diodorus Siculus's description, who differs in that the hands of the statue extended outwards and sloped down. This meant anything placed on them would roll down and into the pit of fire below. Diodorus wrote in the 1st century BC and hailed from Sicily, a location where Carthaginian culture and influence had been in place prior to Roman and had indeed clashed with Greek colonies there. It might mean he had added insight and sources, but it could also mean he was just a bit more prejudiced. In any case, Diodorus really ramped it up and claimed that around 500 children were sacrificed in one instance when Carthage was under threat from an army led by Agathocles of Syracuse, which can be dated to around 310 BCE. The large number was offered due to the imminent threat, and to make up for a rite which hadn't been properly observed. As Diodorus puts it, in former times they had been accustomed to sacrifice to this god the noblest of their sons, but more recently secretly buying and nurturing children. The Carthaginians had been cutting corners, and the sacrifice aimed to rebalance the relationship with Baal, who is referred here again as Kronos. The last of our historians is Plutarch, who is a 1st century CE historian, and in his superstitions wrote how the flutes and the drums at the sacrifices aimed to drown out the noise of the wailing and crying. Plutarch also referred to the act of people buying children to sacrifice, presumably instead of their own. If nothing, the accounts answer the question of just how you can take infant sacrifice and make it somehow even more horrific. We have no evidence that the statue mentioned existed, but it was a hook, and one which helped fix the right of child sacrifice at Carthage, firmly in the mind of at least a more modern audience. In 1862, Gustave Flaubert released Salambo, a novel set just after the First Punic War. It featured a scene in which the people of Carthage, whilst under siege from the rebelling mercenaries, commit their children to the flames as a last resort. The scene described by Flaubert is harrowing and utilises a very large statue whose arms extend outwards and whose belly is akin to an oven where the victims end up. The novel was a bestseller and though I can't vouch for how this was received, my estimation is that it helped fix this representation of child sacrifice in the collective consciousness of its readers. And in fairness, this happens today. Pick a historical film and the chances are the invented part or shall we say, the aspects with the most artistic licence, usually become markers of authenticity. This leads to that awful moment when a friend or relative mentions the inaccuracy and you end up being that person who corrects them and kills the conversation or just biting your tongue and let it eat away at you from the inside. The location for child sacrifice has been placed firmly at the Tophet. Tophets are present elsewhere in the Mediterranean, for example at Sicily, Malta and Sardinia. In Carthage, the Tophet is dated as far back as the 8th century BCE, and as such it formed a central point for the city and was used up until the city's destruction by the Romans in the 2nd century BCE. The Tophet at Carthage has supplied successive excavations and studies with a large amount of material, be it in the form of urns containing remains of infants or stelae. For some scholars, the abundance of infant remains didn't suggest sacrifice, but instead burial. The Tophet existed as a cemetery for infants, 
though this didn't rule out the possibility that some were sacrificed and buried there. This debate has accumulated momentum more recently, but I'm very wary of getting sidetracked by it, so I'll leave it here as an acknowledged point and move on with the generally held view that child sacrifice was practiced, but appreciate there's plenty more to understand and hopefully we'll continue to learn more about this as more is discovered and understood. Going back to the urns, these were present from the earliest period right up until the destruction of Carthage. Some contained more than one infant and others contained animal bones which had been identified as that of a kid and lamb. It's difficult to think of these outside of the context of substitute sacrifice. Perhaps in some instances the sacrifice of an animal sufficed in replacing an infant or it could be that it lent more weight to an offering of one. The stelae which start to appear from the 4th century BCE are initially basic before developing into quite elaborate pieces which depict figures and are inscribed. These inscriptions are votive in nature, meaning they relate to an offering and usually to Baal Hammon, though the goddess Tanit was also worshipped in the Tophet and often linked to Baal. In a paper titled Phoenician Bones of Contention, Paolo Xella and other scholars view these stelae as being crucial in understanding how the sacrifice worked. The stelae contain a standard formula, with the root word for molech often appearing. You might remember molech from earlier. This standard wording follows a pattern of dedication to Baal and Tanit with the phrase, because he heard his voice, at the end. And this has been understood as meaning that the prayer was answered following it being acknowledged. A rudimentary picture can be formed wherein a person makes a request of the deity, it's fulfilled, and then the person makes the dedication in the form of the sacrifice, I suppose their end of the bargain. As I mentioned, the stele also featured depictions, and these have included the image of, of a crescent with a disc on it, and the image of Tanit. The latter will be familiar to anyone who's played Rome Total War II. The best way I can describe it is a triangle with a circle at the top looking like a head, and a horizontal line between the two being arms. One stele dated to the 3rd century BCE depicts a male figure holding an infant, and this has been argued as a reputation of a priest carrying a child to sacrifice. Obviously this is one specific reading. The idea that it could be a smoking gun or red herring is a familiar theme in this podcast. Where we don't have evidence, we doff the Sherlock hat and get thinking. Where we do have it, well, we have to keep the hat on. But that's part of the attraction of ancient history for me, and will always continue to be so. You are never fully sure of anything, and unlike the death pits of Ur, the subject is always fresh. And on that force pun, I think it's time to wrap things up, just like they did at the death pits of Ur. Ah, okay, I'll stop. What I've tried to do in this podcast is foster the idea that human sacrifice existed, and it was known about. It might not have met with approval from everyone, but certain societies incorporated and controlled it through their cultural handling of it all. And this is important, because often Greece and Rome are seen as distinct and removed from any cultures but their own. But hopefully, looking at the shores to the south and east of the Mediterranean permits a picture to be formed, and which can inform both Greece and Rome, which I'll be looking into in part two. Because if you thought that both of these cultures were squeaky clean in this regard, well... Listen out for part two, because I've got news for you. If you want to say hi, find me on Twitter, at AncientBlogger, and why not pop by my website, AncientBlogger.com. I'm on Instagram, as AncientBlogger, and have posted a couple of pics of film posters, 
or films based on Salambo, just as a bit of a niche thing. It's better than pouting, I suppose. And until then, take care, cheer up, and keep safe.